chapter 5, I'm going to start in verse 2 and, uh, and read this. This is Jesus beginning his sermon on the mount. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would uh, take this word and my attempt to uh, expound on it and, and take it much, much further than I'm able to do. Um, I pray that your spirit would, would do that for us today. Open our eyes, open our hearts, open our ears, help us to understand um, what you have for us. God, I know that sermons like this are not fun, but I pray that you would help us to see the comfort. The morning is a big deal, God, but help us to see the comfort I ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, last week, we considered the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we looked at that idea of being poor first. Poor, impoverished. And we, we, we learned that that word is literally means like a beggar crouching cowering almost and asking for money. And then we coupled that with the phrase in spirit. So we're to be poor in spirit. And we saw that what, what it means to be poor in spirit. That Jesus began this sermon with the most basic fundamental principle of Christianity. The first building block of being a child of God. And that is that we must understand that when it comes to spiritual matters, matters of the heart and our spiritual condition apart from God, that we are like beggars or we should be like beggars. That we must first and foremost be able to recognize that in ourselves and left to ourselves, we have nothing to offer. We have nothing to offer the Lord. We have nothing in us that might give us spiritual life. We are naturally, spiritually dead in our sin and we need to be revived. We don't have it. If you think of a beggar, the reason they beg is because they have nothing. To submit yourself to the mercy of others because you have nothing, that's a humbling experience. They don't have anything. And we are to be like that in spirit, poor in spirit. And that's foundational to Christianity. So today we, we kind of move on to the second beatitude that's very closely related. As, and I said last week, these build on one another. So as we go and we, we learn these beatitudes, we can't take one and say, well, I like this one and leave out the other 
seven or eight or how many ever you believe there are. You can't say, well, I like this one. I'm, I don't really like that one. I think this one really describes me. That one, not so much. Um, it's not for us to decide what Christianity is. Right. Jesus himself is describing this is what a child of God looks like. These are the rules, okay? We don't go on the basketball court with soccer cleats and say, hey, I'd rather play with cleats. It don't work like that. The rules are already established. It's the same way with being a child of God. So I'm going to read this beatitude again, and I'm going to read it slow, and let's just think about these words. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Comforted. Now, when we we first read this, when we read the phrase "Blessed are they that mourn," we, we, it's kind of confusing because last week we said the word "blessed" makarios means happy, really, truly happy. Not it's based on truth, and and we talked about how lost people can be happy, but the reason they're happy is because they're ignorant to the truth. They're ignorant to ultimate reality. They don't know that they're sinners. They haven't seen it yet. And so they can be happy. They can be joyful and go about their lives and, and not understand truth. But as Christians, and this word happy means really, truly happy based on the truth of God's word. Ultimate reality is God's word. And so that's what that word blessed means. Happy. So this verse basically says happy, truly happy are they that mourn. This sounds contradictory, right? Happy are they that mourn. Remember, as we study this, the kingdom of heaven is almost always backwards from what we normally think, what our natural inclination is, what we perceive on the surface when we read these things. So keep that in mind. What does it mean? Because when I think of mourning, I don't know about you, I think of crying at a funeral. You know, black widow with a black veil and tears at a, at a funeral. When I think of happy, I think of going to a birthday party or, or hanging out with friends or whatever. So, so how can these two go together? That's the question that we have to answer. How can Jesus says, happy are they that mourn? Sounds like two complete opposites. We will get there. But at first, I want to ponder a little bit what we began with last week. Because I started off last week by talking about how Christianity is really superficial in our culture. Especially American, Western, evangelical Christianity is very superficial. Because it's a a heart issue, we would all admit. Salvation is of the heart. and, And so it's inside and spiritual matters are usually kept inside. And we're taught that we're these are private issues. And most Christians don't know... Enough from the Bible to say that's false or that's true. They don't know it. They don't read it enough to know. And so that was kind of how I started last week. And I want to continue with that thought. And I think that we would all agree that there are a few things that are byproducts of Christianity being so superficial. A few things that make it this way or or that have come from us saying... It could be this or it could be that. Christianity is this to me, but it might be that to you and we just all should just get along. And it, it can't be this way. This is not an option. So there are a few things that are byproducts of this. The first thing is that Christianity 
if you are a Christian, it ultimately leads to this super bubbly happiness, excitement all the time. You're just bubbly all the time and excited all the time and happy all the time. And you're like a, a hummingbird on caffeine all the time. You're just super excited all the time and happy because Jesus loves me. And so that's one byproduct. And if you watch much television, you'll see that TV kind of pokes fun at this, of the, of the extremes. But um, TV and and and... Media pokes fun at this idea that Christians are just always happy and bubbly. And the second one that is a byproduct of Christianity being so superficial, and this is a lot more serious, is the idea that sin isn't that big of a deal. Sin isn't that big of a deal. We we acknowledge and I agree that there is always more grace than there is sin. Always. Grace always can cover sin. It's always sufficient. But we take that grace and we twist it and we use it as a springboard into licentiousness. We just do whatever we want and say, well, it's not that big of a deal. Jesus died on the cross. It's paid for. I can do whatever I want. Sin is not that big of a deal. These are two different misconceptions and they have led to human beings inventing a religion that expects that negatives should never be in the forefront of our theology. Don't talk about the negatives. Don't talk about sin. Don't talk about anything else bad because that turns people away. And we don't want to turn people away, so let's just forget those things. I myself have even said that far too long or for far too long Christians have been known for what they are against rather than what they are for. And I understand where people are coming from, but when it comes to sin, the Bible says God is against sin. So we need to make sure that we understand that we are against sin. And as far as turning people away, read John chapter 6. Because it starts off with somewhere around 15,000 people following Jesus and ends with 12. One of which was Judas Iscariot because of what Jesus said. He said some things that were offensive. So this whole idea about turning people away, the gospel is always going to be repulsive to those who are lost. It's foolishness to those who are lost. And so, this is this new Christianity. And it's probably not new at all, but the, the way that we begin to think and we come up and we perceive theology is that is this way. And so, if we take mourning, for example, the world teaches us that we should do anything and everything that we could possibly do to keep from mourning. Everything that the world says is worthwhile, that is fun, is enjoyable, is beneficial, is important is seen as such because it produces instant gratification. That's the only things that are fun, is instant gratification. And this is the opposite of mourning. Gratification, fulfillment, happiness is the opposite of mourning to our culture. And so we don't want to feel sorrow. We don't want to feel regret, which is what mourning means. So, And I've even heard people say... I don't regret the things that I've done in my past because it's made me out who I am today. Are you kidding me? Really? If you, if, if you grow up, and, and we all do this, we're born sinners. If you're a Christian now and you can't look back in your past and say, I wish I had never sinned, you don't understand sin. You don't get it. Sin is not what got you where you are today. Grace is what got you where you are today. So this whole idea about, well, I don't regret anything because it made me who I am, that's stupid. The, the, and this attitude is exactly what Jesus is saying here. 
Because to mourn in the world's eyes is a negative. So we're told to do everything we can to keep from mourning. Even at the death of a loved one, we're told to remember the good times. Remember the good times. Don't be sad. Remember the good times. So in essence, transcend reality. Go outside of the moment that you're living in. Go back in the past. Recreate an event. And think of that to keep from mourning, to keep from remaining in reality. Transcend reality at all costs to keep from feeling any sorrow, any regret. Try to achieve nirvana like Kurt Cobain did and you see where it got him. Because ultimately if you keep on looking for transcending reality, transcending reality, ultimately you're going to stick a gun in your mouth to get out of reality. You see where that leads. So that's, this is what the world says because the world says that to mourn is a bad thing. Even... Contemporary Christianity has been falsified in this attempt to rid the world of any and all mourning. And this, is, this goes into our social justice projects. I'm not against helping people or social justice. But the, the issue is we need to do this over here and do this over here and do this over here because these people are sad and these people are hurting and these people are broken. So let's, let's give them some food, give them some water, give them some clothes, give them some shoes so that they won't be sad anymore. But the problem is we haven't addressed their problem at all. The problem is they're sinners. They need a savior. Do you look at the Bible? The most miserable people in the Bible or the most that had the least. The Apostle Paul in prison was saying, I got Jesus. I don't need anything else. Don't give me shoes. Give me Jesus. This, this is the idea that the Bible teaches, but that we try to come in and undercut and say, well, let's just make them happy. Let's get them to be happy. And then we'll talk to them about Jesus. If they don't have any reason to rely on Jesus, if they can just say, well, I'll just keep hanging out here and getting my shoes and getting my clothes and getting my food, they've got nothing to lean on. So that's what Christianity and, and what we try to do. And we, we, we make this out to be a, a fake religion that Christians are people who are constantly happy and just want to make the world happy and take care of happiness. And this goes back to that cheerleader idea that I addressed last week. That it's like to be a Christian, you're constantly bubbly, happy with your Jesus pom-poms, cheering and excited and happy. And if you don't feel this way or act this way, then something's wrong with you. And this leads to another false Christianity that exists only in people who are really happy all the time. And if you're not really happy all the time, you don't know Jesus because Jesus is joy. And Jesus. And I agree with those things, but this is not biblical Christianity. We walk around with this Jesus spirit, like school spirit or team spirit. We're just cheering all the time. We're not in reality. This world is not like that all the time. And so this, this false Christianity makes it look like we're just a 24-7 youth camp. Just constantly neon t-shirts and friendship bracelets and we're just happy. And, and it's not that way. That's not reality. So when we go to church, we put on a facade. We act like something we aren't. We try to be super friendly, super excited, super happy, super bubbly, excited people because that's what Christians are, right? We're just happy all the time and that's not true. But that's the idea that's promoted, and most people don't know the Bible good enough to say that's not real. What are they? What are they doing? This is this is fake. And and before I move forward, I do want to clarify that even though it is wrong to put on this facade and act like something you aren't and be super jovial and happy all the time, doesn't warrant the mindset that we come here on Sunday morning and mope around and hope that somebody hears me sigh. 
So that they'll say, what's wrong? And you can say, well, unload on them your week. Man, my week's been this bad. I'm just struggling with this. My, my world's just crashing in around me and my life is hard. And, and this goes back to last week how we talked about what the, the, the misinterpretations of being poor in spirit. It doesn't mean that you're just constantly beating yourself down and the world's just crashing in on you and you can't take it. And that's not what Jesus is teaching here. That's not what this time is for. And this is a good plug for our small groups. That's what small groups are for. Getting involved, getting a close-knit family of people that can take the time to ask you how your week was, pray for you, address specific things. If you're not involved in a small group, you do not know Axis Church. I'm sorry that I cannot apologize for that. We're not a church with small groups. We're a church of small groups. That's how we do our ministry. That's how we do outreach, in-reach, Everything is our small groups. Sunday morning and small groups. If you're not a part of a small group, you're not getting it. If somebody comes in here on Sunday morning and says, I tried out Access Church, I'm going to say, you have no clue what Access Church is. You don't know these people. So that's a little plug for small groups. That's what that time is for. But I want to go back to this idea that, that Christians are always bubbly and happy and there are cheerleaders for Team Jesus. Because people don't know their Bibles. They can't say that that's not true. Um... In Numbers eleven fifteen, Moses requests that God kill him. In Jonah four three, Jonah requests to die. Jeremiah cursed the day he was born. Job cursed the day he was born. Jesus himself. We never read anywhere in Scripture where Jesus ever laughed, ever. Now that doesn't mean he didn't, but that means that obviously wasn't a defining characteristic in his character. Jesus was a you know a, a comedian or had a great sense of humor. <laughs> We are told, however, that he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He bore our sorrows. He wept. He was saddened at times. He had compassion on people who were suffering. The Apostle Paul in Romans seven twenty four says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, I'm not saying we can't ever laugh and have a good time. If you know me, you know I am a... I'm a, I'm a, I love laughing. I love humor. I love just having a good time. But when you read... The, about the people in Scripture and the way that God has chosen to reveal Himself to us and His plan to us in Scripture, these don't sound like guys who just came from a youth rally super pumped up about this new slogan that they got to get them through second period. These, these men were mourning. They were broken. Why? Why did Jesus mourn? Why was He a man of sorrows? Why did Paul say things like this? The answer is that all these men, they were in the trenches of spiritual warfare. They were doing what God told them to do. And when you do that, it gets hard. It gets tough. They were staring eyeball to eyeball with a fallen world. People who were broken and sick and dying. Homes and families that were destroyed because of sin. Personal lives that were wrecked because of sin. Wives who were alone because of sin. Children who were left to just figure things out on their own because of sin. Friends and loved ones dying and go to hell every day because of sin. Crowds of people who were overworked and underpaid because of sin and its effects on the world. Now these men, just like all Christians... All true Christians had a proper worldview. They had a Christian worldview. And so they could see all that was going on and not say, man, you know, I wish, you know, I wish the government wasn't this way. They, they understood. They could, see the, they could see underneath that superficiality of the whole world. And they could see what was going on in people's lives to cause this situation. They knew that it was sin and that God hates sin. 
And because of this, they were broken. It wasn't just because people were hurting. It was because this breaks the heart of God. Sin is a big deal. And it was painful to their very core. These men, Scripture, love the Lord. They wanted to honor God. They wanted to see all creation bowing before the God of the universe and worshiping God. But instead, creation is subjected to futility because of sin and groaning with the pains of childbirth because of sin. Sin is a big deal. And we as Christians should be that way. There's no way to be a true follower of Jesus without having this proper view of sin. Sin is a big deal. God is dead set against sin. And we live every day getting more and more used to sin, used to the effects of sin, to the point where we aren't bothered by it. See, if you follow sanctification in Scripture, that means every day we should hate sin more and more. More and more and more and more. But instead, we get more and more used to it. And it gets easier for us. It doesn't affect us anymore. This is the sin that put Jesus, the Son of God, on the cross. We laugh at it, joke about it. It's fun to us. Most of the time we don't even notice that it's sin. We have to come to the preacher and say, Hey, is it a sin if... Fill in the blank. We don't even know God good enough to know what sin is. We don't read His Word enough to know, Is it it really a sin if I... We don't know God good enough to know what breaks His heart. But if we're truly poor in spirit... We realize that we're spiritually bankrupt. We have nothing to offer. That we are dead and in need of resurrection. Then we have seen that sin is sin. And we will look at our own lives. And we will see all the places where sin has crept in. And made itself a home. And we will see all the ways in which we look more like the world than we do Jesus. And we will mourn over sin. We will mourn. When you see sin, you will mourn. If you don't mourn, you don't see sin. Because we'll see God, the just and gracious creator of all things, the supreme and infinite being in the universe, the most majestic and glorious being that there is, the absolute from which all absolutes flow, the one who is our sustenance and satisfaction, the giver, the gift, the goal of the gospel itself, we'll see him. We'll see that he's perfect and he is holy, that he is set apart. He is, by definition, that which is other than anything we can see or comprehend. And when we begin to see God for all that he is, it only follows that we begin to see ourselves for all that we really are. Through God's Word. How has God revealed Himself? Through His Word. When you read God's Word, you start seeing God. When you start seeing God, you start seeing yourself for who you really are. And so, this is how we learn who we are. Romans 3 has a very good description of who we are. We've looked at it before, but I want to look at it again and kind of get a good grasp on who we really are. These passages are not fun to read. But if... The Apostle Paul considered it important enough to include in his gospel to the church in Rome that I think it's important enough for us to read. Now, these verses, I'm going to begin in verse 10. He's he's quoting from the Old Testament. So specifically, he's talking about the children of Israel and he's bringing that out to describe all humans apart from Jesus. But if you go to its specific roots, the children of Israel were God's children. 
They were given the law. They were the best of the best. They could do what they were supposed to do. Listen to what it says. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. See, this should immediately clear anybody's minds of thoughts like, that's nah, not me. I don't, he, he don't know me. He don't know what he's talking about. I'm really not that bad. Because these statements are very clear as to who it entails. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. No one does good. We don't look for good. We don't seek truth. We don't pursue God. We don't care about those things. We have all turned aside. We're looking everywhere else. Our focus is everywhere else except for God. And honoring the Lord. We might say, I'm not that bad. But this verse says, no one does good. So you might not be that bad. See, that's the difference between total depravity and utter depravity. The Bible doesn't teach that you're as bad as you could be. It does teach that you are dead in sin. And so you might not be that bad. But the Bible says, apart from Christ, you've never done anything good. This is how he goes on. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Our throats are open graves. From our mouths we spew forth lies and deceit. We trick people with the way we phrase words in our conversation. and way we put emphasis on certain words. We trick people. We entice people out one side of our mouth while stabbing them with the other side of our mouth, we will say sentences like this. We will say, I know this is probably gossip, but... And we finish the sentence. We know it's sin. I will acknowledge with my mouth out loud that this is sin against God, and I'm going to do it anyway. I'm just going to keep on going. This is what we do. I'm a Christian, but I'm going to sin against God on purpose and decide to do it. This is what we do. We know it's wrong and we just do it. We just outright sin. We talk behind people's backs. We put others down so that we can walk away from a conversation with the title of most entertaining. People love to talk to you because you always got the dirt. This is what we do. And if we aren't saying the things ourselves, we'll sit and listen to people do it, which is exactly the same thing. We're, we're cheerleaders. Go, 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 go. Because I'm listening, I'm going to keep on asking you to do it. I'm listening. We are supporting and pushing it. Keep doing it. Just by our presence, just by the fact that we listen, we're saying, I support the sin that's coming out of your mouth right now. He goes on. He didn't stop. He keeps going. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He's not just talking about murder. We are fallen. Dead in sin. Eager to sin. In bondage to sin. Lovers of self. Lovers of money. Lovers of pleasure. Worshippers of celebrity and sex and money and fame and gossip. This is us. We are enemies of God, quick to lie, steal, cheat, throw others under the bus, serve ourselves before we serve other people, do whatever makes us happy at all costs, and slow to commit to anything that might cost us the least bit of comfort. I don't know. I might be there. We'll see. I don't know. I, might, I, I could maybe possibly come up with something else to do, so I better not commit. Let me just say, I'll think about it. I'll pray about it. This is us. This is where we stand in relation to God. 
And one of the biggest lies of Satan that the church, and I use that word church loosely, has embraced and ran with is the lie that sin, these things, it's not that big of a deal. There's always grace, man. Just chill. It's not that big of a deal. We've gotten so used to sin that it doesn't bother us. We would even dare to assume that some people are Christians even though there's no fruit of the Holy Spirit in their lives. None. Well, I think he's a Christian. He said Christian one time. He said Jesus one time. I think I saw a sticker on his car. These are lies from Satan, and we're just gulping them down. We're gulping them down by the gallon because we don't know God's Word. We don't know what it says about a Christian or who a Christian is or what a Christian should do. We just make it. We just invent it. I just invent a Christianity. And our foolish misunderstanding and abuse of God's grace has led us to believe that the way we live really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. God's grace covers my sin and so I can do whatever I want. And this is not the case. And, and, and we will even sit here, we'll listen to this sermon, and maybe feel a little convicted... Maybe even of specific things. We'll think of things. Specific things. So that's, I shouldn't have it in my life. Things that don't honor the Lord. Things that exalt sin and parade sin. And when I'll say amen. And the music will come up. We'll go to lunch. We'll forget it. And by tonight we'll be sitting in the lap of sin again. It just, it just brushes right off of our shoulders. I understand that. I've said in church services my whole life. Not a very long life. But I know how it works. This is what we do. Because we've been fooled into believing that sin isn't that big of a deal. You want to know what God thinks about sin and sinners? If you've got a Bible, turn to Psalm chapter 5. Psalm chapter 5. And begin in verse 4. Psalm 5, verse 4. It's talking about God. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Now some people read that and they'll go do their word study and they'll say, well, the word hate actually means that he loves less. Well, let's just go on to describe how much less he really loves them. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. See, this is us. This isn't describing a select few axe murderers and rapists and child molesters and drug dealers. This is describing natural human beings apart from the finished work of Christ. We are the evildoers. We are the liars. We are deceitful. And God is dead set against us. God hates all evil doers. It doesn't get any clearer than that. He hates all evil doers. He will destroy those who speak lies. Ever told a lie? You're a liar. You stand in opposition to God. And if something doesn't happen, He will destroy you. That's what this says. So have you ever considered these things? Have you ever come to terms with this? Because see, I'm, I'm, I'm fearful that some of you don't even understand it now. It's like I say it and you just it's not sinking in. See, for some of you, you hear these things and you're still thinking, that's not me. Or I'm different or I'm not that bad or yeah, but, yeah, but I done this. Or, yeah, but I did that. Or yeah, yeah, but I do this too. You're not seeking God. You're not seeking truth. 
You're trying to defend yourself. When you open scriptures and it tells you who you are, you don't defend yourself. The Bible says, when it's all said and done, every mouth will be shut. We're not going to defend ourselves. And the Spirit of Jesus living inside of you will not say, Yeah, but you've done this. Yeah, but you've done that. Yeah, but you're doing this. The Spirit of Jesus will never say that. The Spirit will say, Jesus did this. Jesus done that. Jesus paid for it. That's the Spirit of truth. But you don't seek God. You're not looking for truth. And I'll tell you why. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. It says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. This is why people don't understand what I'm saying right now. If you're not getting it, it's just kind of going off your shoulders. It's because the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, Satan has minds blinded. He has people fooled. They cannot see the truth of the gospel. They just cannot comprehend it. They don't see the beauty of Christ. They don't see how bad they are. Satan tells you that sin isn't that big of a deal. But we can't stop there. Because Jesus didn't stop there. He goes on to say that they are blessed or they are happy because they shall be comforted. This is the good news. He's talking about believers, children of God, those in whom Christ's Spirit reigns, those whom the kingdom of God dwells in their hearts, Christians. If you are a believer, this means you have seen truth. A true Christian is no longer blinded by Satan. He's seen the truth of the gospel. God's Spirit has opened his eyes and his Spirit speaks through the truth of his word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. If you've got saved any other way, got saved any other way other than by studying or hearing, sitting under God's Word, being convicted by God's Word, you're not saved. It doesn't work any other way. Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 to say, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, just like in the beginning when God said, let there be light, and He made it. He didn't say, turn on the light. He said, let there be light. There was no light before that point. It was darkness. No light existed. It wasn't flip the switch. It was create light. He spoke what He created. He created what He commanded. He just made it. In that same manner, He speaks into our hearts and creates light. For us to see the gospel of Jesus and to see the beauty of Jesus. This speaking creates what it commands. He doesn't say, turn on that flickering light or tighten that bulb in. He says, let there be light. He creates it out of nothing. So to be truly saved means you have been made alive. You have The light has come on. You have seen sin as it really is. Your eyes have been opened to the reality that upholds all other reality in the universe. The reality of the supremacy of Christ and the fallen nature of humanity. And in that moment, when you see the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus, that glory shines on you just like a spotlight. And you see yourself. Like it's been dark this whole time and I couldn't see. And now all of a sudden you see it and you see You're spiritually bankrupt. You see the sin. You begin to acknowledge the poverty of your spirit. And the only appropriate response is to fall at the mercy of the judge and receive the gift of grace in Jesus Christ. Receive. 
I'm a beggar. I've got nothing. I'm just receiving. So in addition to that and building on that, as you see your sin for the first time, as you continue to see sin in your life on a daily basis, you see sin in the lives of others, you see the effects of sin on the world, you will mourn. You will be broken over sin. It saddens you when you see a little kid in a wheelchair deformed who will never have a normal life ever. That people point and jeer and laugh and make fun of them. You will say, that's because of sin. If Adam hadn't sinned, it wouldn't be that way. It's because of sin that that's happened. When a loved one gets cancer and dies, you'll say that's because of sin. It breaks you. You mourn. You begin to hate sin like God hates sin. But here's the good news. Because all this is true, it must follow. If you've seen this, it must follow that you are comforted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the comfort. There is no other comfort other than that. So if you have seen sin and you have rightly assessed sin in your own life and you see these things and, and, and you see that because God is holy and you are sinful that you need a Savior, you need something to fix the problem and you have cried out, if you've fallen at the mercy of the cross, if you've repented, you've turned to worship Jesus, you've turned from sin. If all this is true, then you have the greatest comfort in the universe that transcends any situation Anything you could ever come up against, you have that comfort. Jesus paid for my sin. He died for my sin. You have that comfort of knowing that your sin's paid for. You're free from the bondage of sin. So now you can start to live a life that pleases God because and only because His Spirit is in you working, willing and working that which is pleasing to God. This is true comfort. Like I said, this comfort supersedes any other comfort you could ever imagine. You can sit in a wooden chair for the rest of your life and know that Jesus saved you and you've got comfort. While the world says, think of the good times, and tries to get you to remove yourself from reality, transcend reality. God says, rest in the reality that upholds all reality. The absolute from which all other absolutes flow. The reality that Jesus Christ has paid for sin. The only way you can know that is by reading the scripture. Jesus has paid for sin. If you can rest in that reality, you will be saved. See, this is true comfort. And like I said last week, the gospel condemns before it converts. As God creates light in your heart, like I said, it's like that spotlight. And you begin to see on you all this filth and all this wickedness and all this sin and all this evil. And it makes you everything that makes you an enemy of God. Like, like standing under a black light when you got lint on your clothes. It's like, oh man, I didn't see that before. I'm filthy. I just got this out of the dryer. How can I be so dirty? This is what happens. God, God's light shines and you see all of those things. And then you, then you turn because you want to say, where in the world is that light coming from? And you see... The glory of God shining in the face of Jesus. Shining down. And you see Jesus for all that He is. Jesus died on the cross of Calvary to pay for that sin, that evil, that wickedness, that filth, so that you could be reconciled back to God. He bore our sorrows. So you don't, if you if you would just receive Jesus. You don't stand in opposition to God anymore. You can be a child of God, an heir with Christ. He's the first among many brethren. So it's almost almost like brothers with Jesus. But if you're not a Christian right now, 
then as it stands, you are an enemy of God. You remain an enemy of God. The battle lines are drawn. God's on one side and everybody else is on the other. But you don't have to stay that way. See, my prayer leading up to this and and even now is that hopefully as the word has been preached, that God has opened hearts. And I pray, God, that you would do that now, that, that God has opened hearts and people have begun to realize, man, I am a sinner. I really am. And if you're a Christian, you, you understand it. I am a sinner. If you're not a Christian, you're thinking, oh, man, I'm a sinner. My prayer is that God has opened your eyes, opened the eyes of your heart to see Jesus. Because that's the only thing that will fix it, Jesus. And if you repent and you will receive Jesus as bread, as water, receive his death as payment for your sin, that's what you do. You just receive Jesus. You receive the free gift. And if you can see it and think in your mind and your heart, that's what I need. You receive it. So I'm going to close in prayer. As I pray, you pray. If you're not a Christian, you pray. As I, as I close this service, you call out to God. As I finish what I'm doing, everything I've studied for, you cry out in repentance in your seat and receive eternal comfort. I don't know why anybody would turn down comfort other than that Satan has blinded the eyes of the unbelievers. So I'm going to pray and you can do that. And if you do that in your seat today, I want to know about it. Come tell me. You need to, there's, there's some other things that need to happen. I want to know this. And so don't walk out of here without doing this. Let's pray.